Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. My main interview this week is with former Marine Police Commander Les Bird, talking about the freedom swimmers, the illegal immigrants who would attempt to swim to Hong Kong from the mainland in the wake of the Cultural Revolution in the mid-1970s. So more on that in a moment. First, this weekend marks Remembrance Sunday, so I start the programme with just a couple of minutes conversation with Albert Lam, the chairman of the Hong Kong Ex-Servicemen's Association and Brigadier Christopher Hammerbeck of the Royal British Legion Hong Kong and China branch about how they feel about this annual event and what we remember at Remembrance. Why is Remembrance important to you? Well, it's absolutely vital, I think, both for the community here in Hong Kong. We have uh, some 6,500 Chinese ex-servicemen, all of whom are ageing, and we need to look after them. And we also have those who've served our community, not just in terms of the World War II veterans, who sadly uh, are gradually have just died out, uh, but also right the way through from uh, the 1950s through until the handover, where they were guarding and supporting troops, guarding the, uh, the border, and also uh, looking after engineering and various other uh, aspects of assisting the community. When the British handed Hong Kong back to uh, the sovereignty of China, I was actually determined that, to make sure that this was a community event, that the community could, as it were, buy into it in terms of also generously um, uh, helping with the poppy appeal. But more importantly, uh, to make sure that they did realize that during the Second World War, uh, Chinese ex-servicemen uh, actually set the platform for the modern society which Hong Kong has become. When you go to the Remembrance Day each year or when you go to Remembrance Sunday, what do you think yes. about when you're laying wreaths? Who are you thinking about and what do you think about? Well, it is always a very moving ceremony. I attend every year and I have all my respect uh, to all those people who lay down their life for Hong Kong. So really, I, I just join hand to do a ceremony together with all the Commonwealth and other country people uh, to honor those who gave that, their life for us. And uh, it is a very long history uh, ceremony. In Hong Kong, they back to 1923. It is a very meaningful event to me. When did they build the cenotaph that's there then? The, now, the cenotaph was built in, in 1923, uh, two years after the uh, London Whitehall Cenotaph. So since then, we have our, our first ceremony, and we never stop. Only when the Japanese occupying Hong Kong, we only stopped for three years. Even at a very difficult time during the riot, everything, we still have the Remembrance Day ceremony carry on. My thanks to Albert Lam and Christopher Hammerbeck there. The Freedom Swimmers, as they were known, were young people who took their lives in their hands and swam across Mers Bay and Deep Bay in the hope of evading Hong Kong's marine police and land forces to live and work in Hong Kong. You may have a relative or an older friend who was one. They were often teenagers or young people in their early 20s who came with nothing and often hadn't eaten for days. Most of them couldn't swim, but would try to tie themselves to something that floated as they made their way across at night. They would often risk drowning, being run over by vessels or being attacked by sharks and barracudas. If they were caught, 
they were sent back to the mainland the following morning. Former Marine Police Commander Les Bird was a young inspector in 1977 when he first carried out nighttime patrols. Here he talks to me about the tens of thousands of illegal immigrants who tried to come across and how he and his crew felt about this work. Les Bird will be in conversation with me about his memoir, A Small Band of Men, An Englishman's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police, his 20-year career in the run-up to the Hong Kong handover at this year's Hong Kong International Literary Festival. Before 1949, there was free movement between the, the borders. Uh, people could come and go from the mainland into Hong Kong as they chose. But as the population increased a lot, a frontier closed area was created and a permit system was introduced. But after the Cultural Revolution, people started to want to leave China and chose Hong Kong. But with the land border closed now, many attempted to cross the border by sea. And the two bays, which are close proximity to both mainland China and Hong Kong, are Deep Bay in the west and Merce Bay in the east. And it was via those two bays that the majority of people trying to enter Hong Kong came. And it was our job in the Marine Police, or one of our jobs, to intercept them, if you like, and send them back as a deterrent. Also on, on the mainland side, the, the PLA were doing something very similar in trying to stop people leaving China. So our job was predominantly at night, because it was during darkness that, that people would try to cross the border. And every night we would need to patrol both Merce Bay and Deep Bay in patrol launches in small boats and try and pick them up as they came across. Of course, some of them came across by a small boat, but others, a lot of them, would try and swim across or rather come across aided by flotation devices. A lot of these people actually couldn't swim, so they were, they were actually risking their own lives by trying to cross the border in that way. I think the majority of people we picked up were either teenagers or people in their early 20s, so it was young people that were fleeing the mainland to what they perceived to be coming to freedom, hence the term freedom swimmers that was coined. We would pick up between 20, 30, 40, 50 a night, and that's just in, on my launch alone in Merce Bay in 1977. Yeah, because you come here in 1976 from the UK, you're trained up, and then the issue of the freedom swimmers or illegal immigrants from the mainland is, is one of the first things that you face. Yeah, it was actually the first thing, I think. It was the main deployment at the time for the Marine Police. That was our main focus. That was before the influx of Vietnamese uh, refugees started, really, in, in a couple of years after that. So illegal immigration was the primary role of the Marine Police. And, you know, it was, it, it was actually tough because I'd come to Hong Kong to make a better life for myself. as I was obviously a very young man then, and here I was pulling people out of the bay to send back to China and they were probably more or less the same age as me and they were doing the same thing. They were coming to Hong Kong to make a better life for themselves and there was me sending them back. So it was, it was an odd dynamic for me at that time. Not just you though, but also for your colleagues on board. Mm, yes, I was an inspector and I had a lot of sergeants and, and police constables working for me who were a lot older than me. So they had a lot of experience doing this. And many of them actually came from families that had illegal immigrants in their family. So people who'd been successful in, in, in coming and starting a life here. And they were uncles or fathers of the men who I was working with. 
So it was really, really strange in that everyone felt sorry for these people, but we had a job to do. And the guys, when they came on duty, they would bring food, clothing to give to these people that we pulled out of the water and try and make the process as comfortable as possible, if you, if you can use the word comfortable. It was sad, really, and it was very, very strange to experience the whole thing of, of arresting someone and then sending them back and then feeling sorry for them. You've shown me some photographs from that time. That you, that there's, uh, uh, I'm just looking at one here that's just five young people. I mean, really, you know, some of them are looking 14, 15, really, and uh, they're all hanging on to flotation devices. They look like sort of inflatable cushions, really, in the water there and all looking up and they have nothing I mean they're literally the boy in the photograph or one of the boys is probably just got a pair of shorts on as he moves forward so what was the process for them I mean sometimes they would travel for days they would come from all the southern areas around southern China Guangdong Fujian Hunan province and they would walk to the coast, to the southern coast. They probably didn't really know where they were going. They just head south. And they would travel at night on foot, so not to be detected. They would try and find food on the way. Some of them had been walking for a month. Obviously, they were very, very hungry. They certainly weren't in any, any way to try and swim the three miles across Merce Bay. And many of them couldn't swim. So they would somehow find something to hold on to, a flotation device, uh, car tires, inner tubes, plastic pillows that they'd blown up, and they would hold on to them and try and kick or swim or manoeuvre across the bay. And some of them had been in the water seven, eight, nine hours when we pulled them out. They really were in no condition to make it. Even if there were no security forces there, they probably wouldn't have made it anyway, physically not capable to, to do that. So they were in poor condition. You were right there. They didn't really carry anything. They certainly didn't have any money, and I don't think they really had a plan on what they were going to do when they made it. It was just make a break for it and try and uh, get to Hong Kong and hope for the best. Sometimes they would carry a spare set of clothing in a plastic bag, but they would drop it on the swim. When you're in, in the bay at night and it's completely dark, you can't see where you are, they must have been terrified. And they can hear the engines of the police launches and the Chinese security forces around. The chances of being run over were actually quite high if we didn't see them because, you know, it's total darkness. And then the only way we could really identify them was on radar and, and using night vision goggles, which is how we located them all. So, so you would work, so it would get to dusk, and that's when they were likely, so they would be waiting on the other side, what, in sort of mangrove bushes or something like that? Yeah, I mean, during the day we would patrol along the beach to the north uh, on the mainland side. And we always used to identify where they would, where the foliage came down to the beach was normally where they would enter the water because they're they're looking for cover, um, in order to avoid the PLA on the on the mainland side. So they would usually all enter the water more or less in the same places every night. So it was actually quite easy for us to know where they were going to swim across or where they were going to originate from. So our job was actually very, very easy. It was just very, very sad. And sometimes, I mean, they wouldn't just swim. They would build those capable and those having the resources would actually build a raft. Some quite splendid craft actually came across, bamboo poles lashed to blue plastic barrels, which, of course, made it much easier shows up on a radar. I didn't think about that. But I remember picking up one guy, he, he was on his own raft, and it must have taken him a week to build. It really was quite, quite impressive. And, you know, he was in the water for about half an hour before we pulled him out.
So he's in the water, he, he arrives, you pull him out, and he goes on the police launch. Obviously, they receive food, clothing often from your colleagues, and then you would return them the following morning. Mm, yeah. so, or how did that work? So th there was a, a morning gathering for us in Merce Bay. It would be a Shattercock, which is the village, the border village, and there would be a morning handover. So the Shattercock police, land police, would come down the pier and we would muster all our launches and put them ashore on the pier. There would be a head count, basic paperwork, no names, if we knew their names, and they would all be marched up the pier to the border crossing where the uh, mainland authorities were waiting for them at a designated time, sort of 8.30 in the morning, and they would be handed over across the border. Do we know what would happen to them after that? Not really, no. I think it was a bit hit and miss whether they would return back to where they came from or there was talk of re-education, I don't know, really. There was very, very little information coming from the mainland in those days. So you would just stare at one another? Oh, yeah, there, there'd be no, there would be no verbal communication between the two units. They would just wait and receive, and the IIs would walk towards them. And it would be like a Berlin Bridge, the way you walk across Checkpoint Charlie, and uh, we'd stay on one side and they'd stay on the other. Coming from Staffordshire and then arriving in Hong Kong, and you're, so you're in southern China, but at this time where you've got these uh, young people obviously wanting to come across to, to Hong Kong, was it, uh, I mean, did you say, right, okay, this is part of my training, or was it quite a strange start for you in this new city that you were living in? Um, I, I guess it sounds strange, doesn't it? But no, it was part and parcel of the job. I'd just finished nine months training. And I guess they'd knocked into me that the law is the law and you, it's your job to uphold it. And whether you like it or not, this is your job at this moment. And Hong Kong is not allowing people to cross the border. Or rather, there's a quota and they're not allowing that quota to be exceeded. And it's your job to send back the people who are breaching that regulation. It sounds a bit sad, but that was the way we looked at it. As I say, the, a lot of the guys I work for came from families that had illegal immigration backgrounds, so it was even worse for them, I, I guess. So I never, I never thought it anything other than um, I had to look at it from a professional way of doing things, yeah. So in your book, A Small Band of Men and Englishmen's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police, you describe one night where you're looking through uh, a night navigation device. So was this like a pair of goggles or was it a long telescope? They were varying. You know, we had a very large one on PL1. Um, it was like a, a huge telescope and it was mounted on a frame. And I would stand out in front of the bridge and the guys in the wheelhouse would look at the radar and they would spot something that they thought was, was a swimmer or a raft and they would give me a coordinate and a distance and then I would turn on this device and look through it and it relied on ambient light which gave a, a totally green and black picture black being light and, and then the ambient light being green so you got like a negative picture through it and you could see people swimming from a mile away quite clearly it was very clear on a totally dark night without turning any lights on from the, because the launch would be darkened it would darken ship so that they couldn't see you so they were gradually swimming towards you 
normally if we were in the right position. And so we would use this device, a night observation device, to identify them and then move the launch closer in. Then a searchlight would be put on and then they would realise, of course, that uh, the security forces were there and uh, their attempts had failed. And then we'd have to pull them out and the process of giving them something to eat and giving them a blanket or change of clothing. So despite the fact that often, you know, the name-taking was quite rudimentary, you know, it was often shared Cantonese, so they would tell colleagues their stories? Yeah, of course. We would try to get as much information from them as we could, which wasn't very much, really. They, they weren't going to offer that much because they were afraid. They were afraid of what was going to happen to them if they started talking about the village that they came from or their family. Then they possibly were thinking that there might be persecution for something, that whether rightly or wrongly, I don't know. So they would really not want to talk. And they'd be frightened as well, they'd be terrified. So they would offer a name. Our crew could generally tell where they came from by their accents. So they would admit to the area in, which, in China which they came from, and that would be all. You're in conversation with me at Taekwon, and it's at F Hall, and that's on the 14th of November between 6 and 7 p.m. So come along and hear Les talking about his life as a rural inspector at Taiyo, the influx of tens of thousands of Vietnamese refugees smuggling in speedboats, and that was late 80s and early 1990s, so the die phase, and uh, daily patrol of Hong Kong shipping, plus the early work of apprehending the freedom swimmers or the illegal immigrants coming in from the mainland. Now, actually, there were different rules by the Hong Kong government at different times. There would be this idea of the, like, the touch base policy or the, the idea that uh, if, if you got, I always hit, understood, like, if you got to Boundary Street or there was various elements, but there wasn't just you that they had to run the gauntlet of. It was also on land. There were the Gurkhas and other soldiers or police? Yeah, the, the, um, the British military and the land police, the, generally the police tactical unit, were deployed every night, the same as us, uh, along the Hong Kong side of the, of, the, of the border. On our side, there were two fences, two, two very high fences, and then on our side, there'd be the Gurkha patrols and the police tactical unit or the New Territories police patrols. So the land border was very heavily policed, which is why I think the majority of the illegal immigrants in, that, in the 70s tried to come across the, by sea. The land border was in effect, it was closed. And you're right, there, there, were, there were varying policies at the time. The government introduced that touch-based policy in 1974 whereby if a person from the mainland crossed illegally and made it into Hong Kong and made it into the urban areas, then they could actually apply for residency. And I think the, the main reason behind that was to remove the possibility or hopefully remove the possibility of that illegal person remaining illegal in Hong Kong and then having to turn to crime uh, in order to exist. So hopefully if somebody came in illegally, they would go and apply for a Hong Kong ID card or, or Hong Kong residency and, they, and they, they would be allowed to stay. For us on the, on the front line, it made a mockery of our job because we knew that people were trying to come in order to do that. So it defeated what we were, we were told to go try and stop them. But if they beat us, then they could stay. So it was rather a silly game as far as we could see. And of course it failed. It didn't work. 
and the government um, abolished it in 1980. So, How do you mean it didn't work? Um, I, I think those that did make it didn't, still didn't go and apply for residency, and they did turn to crime because they were being helped across. Those that, that made it were being helped across by syndicates, snakeheads, as we used to call them. And if you're in the, the, the clutches of a syndicate, when you get to Hong Kong, you're still in the clutches of that syndicate, so you are obliged to go and work for them, which is illegal, doing illegal things, turning to crime. So even if those that did make it, they still didn't go and get residency. They went and worked for the syndicate that had got them in. So the touch-base policy failed in, in, in that hardly anyone ever, ever used it. In your book, A Small Band of Men and Englishmen's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police, you describe one night where you're out on patrol launch one, and this is quite early on in your career. So if you could set the scene for the excerpt that you're about to read us. This excerpt comes from one of my early patrols in Merce Bay, and we've just arrived at our position. It's just after dark, and we, we've set up with radar and night observation devices and we're sitting waiting it's calm it's a moonless night and we're waiting for the first IIs to come it was a beautiful calm cloudless night and with the engine shut down there was not a sound I stepped out onto the bridge wing took a night vision device and scanned the surface of the water at first I could see nothing of interest but there was movement on the beach beams of light were scattered in the trees soldiers, likely PLA patrol. Sir, came a shout from the wheelhouse. There are four or five small radar contacts to our port side, about half a mile. It took a few seconds for my eyes to readjust to the green glare, but then I saw them paddling steadily. I turned and nodded to the guys in the wheelhouse and eased towards the swimmers. A loud thud broke the evening silence as the deck sergeant switched on one of our powerful searchlights. The beam illuminated five swimmers, keeping themselves afloat with inflated plastic pillows. Looking like terrified children, they shielded their eyes against the light, completely defeated. A team of officers ran down to the lower deck, opened a hatchway and threw a line into the water. I leant over from the bridge wing and watched the swimmers being hauled up one by one. They were a sad-looking bunch as they sat in their own puddles of water on the deck. Four young girls and one boy, teenagers dressed in blue and grey cotton Chinese pyjama-style clothes. They looked tired and hungry and were dripping wet. One girl looked around, trying to figure out where she was and what was going on. Others sat with their heads down, resigned to their fate. A cook appeared with a large saucepan of soup and porcelain bowls. He ladled it out and handed it to the five kids who gulped it down. Guan arrived with a clipboard and crouched down, asking them for personal details and how long they'd been travelling. They're farm workers, said Guan, after he'd finished his questioning. They come from Fujian province, East China. They've been travelling overland for two weeks. They've got no money, and I don't think they've eaten in days. They also said that this is their first attempt to escape. These were the first illegal immigrants I'd seen, and my feelings of pity returned young people trying to break free from a life they didn't want. It felt odd. I'd left home too and chosen to come to Hong Kong, yet here I was, stopping others doing the same thing. 
in your book you describe when you first used to go out and that would be in the patrol launch but later on in your career in the 1980s when you know illegal immigrants uh, are still a big issue for Hong Kong you actually would go out on surveillance in a helicopter yeah, the speedboats were beginning to come to be used by the syndicates to bring in illegal immigrants. Um, these were commercial speedboats in those days. And what year was this around? Uh, this would be the probably the early 80s, 82, 83, something like that. So they would use commercial speedboats to bring in boatloads, you know, it's sort of a dozen people crammed into a small speedboat. And they would try and come in during the hours of darkness. But in those days, the, the speedboats were so unreliable with small engines that they would often try and run at dawn or dusk. And so the security forces in Hong Kong decided to use helicopter patrols at sort of 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning and run around the territory boundary, the sea boundary, at low level to spot them trying to come in, and again at dusk. And as a marine police officer, I was tasked with going on board the helicopter as the observer. And it would be my job, once we spotted one, the, the pilot would then follow the speedboat in the helicopter. And it would be my, my job then to vector through the radio, vector police launches onto the target, if you like, and attempt an intercept that way. So we would follow it, track it, and hover over it to identify its position so that the launches could come in and, and hopefully catch it. And it was very successful because obviously a helicopter is, you know, has a, a wide vision radius and very, very high speed, so we were faster than the speedboats. And sometimes we would chase them all the way in. During one patrol, during the morning, it was, it was just daylight, and we'd chase the speedboat all the way in, and it had come into Hebe Haven and no police launch was around at the time. So the pilot said to me, do you want to get out? And I thought he meant he was going to land the helicopter and I was going to get out and try and catch them before they'd actually beached the boat. So get ahead of it. But he didn't mean that. He, he meant, did I want to jump out of the helicopter because he, there was nowhere for him to land. So he was hovering over the end of Hebe Haven Pier and I was expecting him to go down and he looked at me and he said, well, go on then. And so, so like, so I, I got out onto the, the struts, whatever they're called, of the helicopter and, and then dangled down and then just let go. And I, I landed on a parked car. It wasn't very high, but he, I came down with a bit of a thud, rolled off the car and onto the street. Meanwhile, the speedboat had beached just near us and the guy who was driving it ran like hell down the road. Uh, and I chased him, but he was too far ahead of me. Um, so I turned around, and the IIs were all sitting there in the speedboat, not knowing what to do. So we actually caught the IIs, and a police patrol coming the other way caught the caught the guy who'd been driving the speedboat. So it was a successful operation. But I think the car that I landed on, um, the owner of the car wasn't particularly pleased because the top was dented where I'd landed on top of it. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to work here. What happened to the car? But also, I mean, I've seen where I live, um, when uh, people have been winched, uh, say somebody's unwell and they've been winched up. I mean, it's extraordinary the power of a helicopter, you know, the, the whole sea around as I, you know, these circles of water uh, really on the move and very, very loud. So you just sort of inched your way out. Had you done things like this before? 
Well, yeah, I've, I've done skydiving in the late 70s, so I, I was used to climbing out of moving aircraft. Uh, yeah, but you're right. The noise of the rotor blades is, if you've never heard it before, is absolutely terrifying. Uh, and I think this is why the illegal immigrants in that particular speedboat on that day didn't move. They were absolutely terrified of what was going on. They didn't understand what this, this downdraft and this noise, deafening noise was. They obviously thought they were in, in, in some kind of a, a police operation. Uh, they could have actually just got out and ran in different directions and they, they would probably got away, but they were just too terrified, probably by the noise. When you saw these teenagers and young people that would, that would be trying to come to Hong Kong, they would be using inflatable cushions, anything that they could hang on to, that many couldn't swim, and many died. Yeah, in 1979 alone, there were 451 dead bodies found in Deep Bay and Mers Bay, which were IIs that had drowned on the way over trying to swim. And in 1980, there was 224 found, and 188 of those were actually caught in fishing vessel nets because the body, after drowning, would sink, and then after a few days it would slowly come back to the surface, and, and I guess they got caught up in the fishermen's nets so it was a daily it was almost a daily uh, occurrence a fisherman would flag down a police launch in Merce Bay and say I've found something in my net can you have a look at it and it usually be a decomposed decomposed body so it was almost a daily occurrence and looking at the statistics over that period of time 70% of those dead bodies were after autopsies were put in between the age of 15 and 24 so a large percentage of these, these IIs were uh, young, very young people and uh, a lot of them lost their lives. My thanks to former Marine Commander Les Bird talking there on the freedom swimmers or illegal immigrants who would swim across Deep Bay and Merce Bay in the 1970s and into the 1980s. Les Bird will be in conversation with me at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival next week on Saturday, November the 14th at Taekwon, the former Central Police Station compound, if you'd like to join us. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>